and welcome to this next edition of the Global Growth Leaders podcast series. My name is Simon Haig, and I'm delighted as ever to be joined by Henry Wang. How are you, Henry? I'm fine, thank you. Thank you, uh, Simon. And uh, overcoming COVID has really incurred unprecedented human and economic costs globally. Unlike prior economic crises, which have been caused by economic bubble or other financial difficulties, the current pandemic is really causing serious economic damages and supply chain failures globally. Experts have warned that this is not a temporary hiccup, but a serious wake-up call for something more serious. There are some countries pushing for fast recovery and return to business as normal with quick fixes. However, there are also many global leaders with longer-term visions that is encouraging people to think more and to build back better with sustainable improvements. A good example is the recent call by the United Nations World Economic Forum and the G20 in, and B20 on building back better post-COVID with international collaborations. Thank you, Henry. And so, so this crisis has, from a medical research perspective at least, underlined the huge value of global collaboration. We're witnessing the development and adaptation of life-saving technologies and massive research into treatments. We're experiencing perhaps not seen before, at least since the AIDS crisis of the 1980s, sharing of scientific journals, genome sequence sequencing data and clinical trials, bringing together thousands of scientists, medics, companies and researchers globally. To facilitate greater international collaboration and understanding, Henry and I are conducting a series of global podcasts with distinguished international thought leaders from both the West and the East. These thought leaders will be discussing key topical issues, including healthcare, youth, innovation, climate change, media, leadership, and today, culture and education, and much more. And we hope that these open exchanges of views with international thought leaders from both the East and the West should help foster greater international understanding and cooperation. We're delighted that all episodes will be featured on all leading podcast channels, YouTube, and social media internationally, and more. Thank you, Simon. And I'm really glad to be here today, and I'd like to welcome our two wonderful guests, Elizabeth and Andrew. Well, Elizabeth, it is really wonderful that you can join us. And you have had really a very impressive academic and business career. And you've been involved with Peking University, Cambridge, and also you have your own management consultancy. Maybe you can share some with us some of your impressive career and your career journey today, because I'm sure our listener globally would be interested in this. Well, thank you. Thank you, Simon uh, and Henry, for this invitation to the Global Growth Leaders podcast. I've had an opportunity to uh, have a cross-cultural background with over 20 years in the West and uh, living in Hong Kong, which is multicultural, and then uh, was able to spend 10 years in Beijing to um, catch up uh, and enhance my Chinese-ness uh, intellectually. So they say that uh, those who can do will do, and those who cannot do will teach, and those who cannot teach will consult. So I have actually done all three and uh, I'm grateful that I have an industry background in retail, merchandising, design, manufacturing and international trade. Those experiences have given me a very solid 
background for my consulting later on in my life because I find that um, processes are the same, but the contents are different. Then I was able to teach at Hong Kong U uh, for MBA programs for almost 10 years in um, globalization, leadership management skills and strategic uh, topics. Um, so I have done and I have taught and then when it came to consulting, uh, I was in the area of human resources, China strategy and cross-cultural consulting, including uh, joint venture divorces. So my clients include uh, multinational conglomerates uh, like ABB, Henkel, or HSBC. And then I work for government uh, in Hong Kong and in China. Um, and um, did a, also did a lot of pro bono for nonprofits in uh, the area of um, uh, elderly care and uh, suicidal agencies. Uh, during all those years, I was um, able to serve on a lot of uh, government uh, and uh, nonprofit committees, uh, which really gave me the inside uh, look at the um, how different industries were uh, operating. So that's basically my um, sort of very mixed uh, background. And then not long ago, I felt that there was something missing. And I went back to Peking University for 10 years because I can speak three dialects of Chinese, Shanghainese, Cantonese, and Putonghua, but I cannot read and I cannot write. And I went to Peking University and did my um, uh, doctoral in uh, Chinese philosophy and wrote my dissertation in Chinese. So I'm very pleased to be more or less uh, balanced. And then I experienced the classics like the I Ching and the four books, Confucius, Ventures. And I decided everyone in the world who wants to know China must know these classics. That's basically me. Wow, that's very impressive uh, career. And, and, and you're obviously very valued and appreciated globally because you are invited to sit on different boards and universities. And I'm very honored to be invited to, to, to sit with you together at the London University SOAS Advisory Board. But it is wonderful that you have also founded the uh, SDCF, the Sinological Development Charitable Foundation. And it is very successful and you do a lot of wonderful work. Maybe you can share with us some of your key activities. Well, um, because I was it was so beneficial for me to uh, have the experience of really in-depth knowing China after I've done my program. I, I started a charity that I decided this should be shared globally. And I went to uh, the World Congress of Philosophy 23rd uh, meeting and I was asked everywhere to go to their country to teach and I said you know just me alone would not be enough so then I decided that you know countries like Africa and South America uh, Middle East uh, all these countries have no facilities to know anything about the Chinese civilization and if they do, it's very, very minute. So um, my uh, charity 
focuses on 30% of our participants are PhD candidates and above who comes uh, from North America and Europe and 70% comes from Africa and um, uh, South America, Middle East, uh, Southeast Asia, where um, it's difficult to, for students to have exposure to these Chinese thoughts. So Sinology, why did I pick Sinology rather than what they call Guoxia, which is national teaching? National teaching is you can, in Dublin, you can have national teaching by the Irish. And in China, they have national teaching, which is by the Chinese professors to the Chinese students. But Sinology is the understanding of China from the outside world. And uh, because my audience um, are students from all over the world, uh, we select to use inch both uh, original text and translation. And Sinology, of course, was started during uh, the early um, 19th, uh, 20th century when all the missionaries and the trade routes and they needed, they wrote about China and the Vatican and various places, France have very, very good archives. But in today's world, modern contemporary Sinology is not being paid attention to. So what does that mean? It, is it just the classic or is it uh, geopolitical? I mean, I think everything to do with China uh, at the moment is always being understood on the level of politics, economics, trade wars, etc. But no one goes back to the classic and really translate up. What is this culture doing that is different from ours? And if you compare Plato with uh, Confucius, which we can talk about later, is really very, very different. And the mentality of how people think, we call it the mode of thought, which is what my fundamental interest is, is the mode of thought between the East and the West. And that translates into everything that we do. And um, uh, Hong Kong is one of the most prolific place with the, with the most English speaking sinologists in the world. So it's a perfect place for my charity to be housed. Um, and um, so we are now translating uh, the classics into practical, useful um, stories that we hope we can uh, influence the young people and culture. The ser who does culture serve? I think culture serves the youth. We are the generation that has the responsibility to let the cultural aspects of the young people um, be able to go out and tell people who they are. And we can talk about that later. But COVID has given us the opportunity, the biggest opportunity, forcing our program online this year. And I'm so happy that that happened because it's environmentally friendly, it's less expensive, we can reach more people. So if it wasn't for COVID, I've been thinking about it, but you know, I just don't wanna do it. But now I find that this is an opportunity uh, for uh, energy efficiency and uh, um, better results. So I have three eyes, the uh, three eyes of um, what our objective is. And uh, I hope that we will be doing more in-person experiences. 
emphasize on interpersonal skills and communications and develop intuitions, intuitive interpretations of different culture with our students. And that's my focus. Thank you. That's very impressive, Eddie. Simon? Thank you. No, I agree. And, and there's been so much talk of the effect of globalization economically, but, but I, I said yesterday, Henry, that I don't think there's been enough appreciation of the cultural interchange between the West and the East. So the West is doing a lot of more things that have originated from the East, like meditation, mindfulness, balance. And I think that's become more important and vice versa. So that was fascinating. So next up, um, we're very honored to have um, Andrew Conlon-Trant, who is the Executive Dean at Dublin Business School here in Ireland. And Andrew has overall responsibility to the board for the strategy and the operations of the college. Welcome, Andrew. It's good to see you. Hi, Simon. Uh, thanks very much for inviting me along here. It's good to, to see you. And uh, hello to Henry and, and Elizabeth as well. Thanks. So, uh, as you as you said, Simon, I'm the executive dean here at Dublin Business School, and uh, Dublin Business School, or as we we call it DBS, it is a, a large higher education institution uh, here in Ireland. I've been here now for about seven over seven years, uh, actually, and prior to that, I held other positions in education, in social service delivery, and in business, both in Ireland and in the United Kingdom. Actually, a little bit like, like Elizabeth, I think I probably uh, have taught, I have done, and I have consulted. Uh, and right now, I am doing in a teaching organization, which is, is kind of interesting in itself. I am originally a business graduate. Uh, I am also a qualified teacher, as it happens, which is quite appropriate, uh, given where I work right now, and I guess previous employment that I have had as well, or organizations that I've worked in. So I, I very much see myself here at EBS as an educationalist. So fair enough, I'm managing an organization, uh, but I, I see myself as an educationalist and, and the purpose of the organization, and I suppose myself in a sense, is to, to try to inspire and to nurture every learner to realize their career ambitions. Uh, so higher education can deliver many things to, to many people, uh, but from where we stand, uh, we think it is critically important that we, we enhance the, the career prospects of individual students. Of course, DBS is also a service organization, where, uh, organization where students pay fees to the college. So the experience that the learner has, as well as that academic outcome that they achieve, well, they're very important indicators of the performance uh, of the college. Now, like everyone in every organization in Ireland and probably globally, my work today has changed substantially over the last year. And that is exclusively because of the impact of the spread of COVID-19, which we have mentioned a couple of times already. So a year ago, I was very focused on the long-term strategy of the college. And I was considering things like how best to increase the use of digital technology in, in teaching delivery and in student service, or I was looking externally to you know, potential new relationships and new collaborations. But then along came COVID-19 like that. And the immediate focus, of course, had to shift to, to fighting this invisible fire uh, that, that was all around the place. And we had to pivot totally away from face-to-face -face delivery to a total online delivery. And that was very simply to fulfill the teaching obligations that we had to current students. So that was in the immediate sense. But then, of course, we had to navigate the more medium term, and we had to find a way to attract new students for the new academic year, which is going to be quite difficult for us, given the proportion of our students who come here from other countries. So al along with so many other businesses and so many other business leaders everywhere, uh, I think one, one significant thing that I learned over the last year was the practicality of business continuity. You know, business continuity typically in any organization is something that you, you do almost for the sake of doing it for the board. So the board will always say, yes, we need to, and to look at our risks. We need to have a business continuity plan. And you do them, and you do them well and properly. You never actually think you're going to have to put them into practice. Uh, so this year in particular, uh, my biggest learning has been around business continuity, and I could probably lecture on that now myself. So that's, that's a little bit about uh, who I am anyway. 
Wow, no, that's that that's wonderful. And so, how I know you and I have spoken, and I know DBS has or has in the past had a tie up with a Chinese university. But how important is reaching out to a global student audience to DBS? And you've obviously said it is, and in particular with China and Chinese students. Yeah, if you go back to to what I said a moment ago uh, about international students. Uh, so to to put a little more context on that, there's a good third and probably more than a third of our students who are international students. Now I suppose when I when I say that or give that as a piece of data, I'm talking about in a typical non-COVID year. I think the the academic year that we've just started could change any and all of that. But typically, there's a third, indeed heading up to 40 percent of our students would be international students. So you, you can see that there's a, a very significant uh, factor there. But the presence of international students in any higher education campus, it, it's really important. It, it enhances that learning experience for the student. If they can interact with people from other cultures and other backgrounds or people with other experiences. If you go back, or if I can reach back into something Elizabeth said there a while ago about getting, getting deep back into the culture. Now, when we talk about China, Typically, I suppose we talk about you know, economic relationships, business relationships, but it's getting back into that, that cultural experience, which is, is very important. And indeed, that can become somewhat self-perpetuating. So the greater diversity uh, amongst the student body that we have on campus, well, the more attractive the, the campus becomes to, to other international students. Uh, and that's, that's the way we want it, uh, because we, we want to, to have more and more international students here. Now, we're very fortunate that we have a number of relationships with universities and technological institutes in China and other parts of, of Asia as well. And I have visited these institutions many times myself, and I've spoken directly with students. And I know the value that they place on taking a year or more than a year uh, in Ireland, and particularly here at, at Dublin Business School. So for them, it opens up a few things. Firstly, I guess, again, there is that cultural experience piece. Dublin is it's a modern, vibrant Western city. It's easily accessible geographically, and, and we speak English. So our students from China and elsewhere in Asia, they have integrated really well here into living in Dublin. And equally, by doing that, they have contributed to the experience of others on campus here too. The second thing then, um, it can provide for the international students a different approach to learning. Now, higher education in Ireland is typically discursive. It depends, of course, on the, the, the discipline and the subject area. But typically, it's discursive. It's not hugely prescriptive. Um, and it should cause and it should enable the students to, to think and to push the boundaries of their own mind. And this can be really engaging for, for a student. Uh, so if if an international student comes from a culture where their, their education or their higher education prior to this has been different, well then there's, there's, there's a new experience there for them too. So the, the home environment or the, the classroom teaching environment in many, or many countries outside of Ireland, uh, we've seen that it probably is a bit more, let's call it asynchronous uh, in nature. Uh, and they may not quite have had the opportunity for debate that they'll get here. So there is that, that new experience that the student can get here. So global audiences for us, for DBS, they're part of our bread and butter. Uh, um, they're a broad-based, or as they are for any broad-based higher education institution. And they're needed to enhance that student experience and indeed to push the boundaries of, of knowledge and learning. So reaching out to global, audience, global audiences I would consider this to be quite critically important uh, for us at TBS. Wow, that's that that's a great answer. And it, it just reminds me, I, I you know, I've lived in five countries and I, you know, I grew up in England and I've lived in Australia and I've worked in the States and I've spent a lot of time in China. And I do see quite significant similarities between the Chinese cultural psyche and the Irish in that, you know, education is really, really important. Education is highly prized in Ireland and in China probably more in Ireland than the UK. Um, the family as well is very important. And the, the traditional spiritual bias, I think, to the population, and that's changing obviously with the younger generation. And it would be really interesting, it brings me on to my next question, to see how Chinese education and Irish education maybe together could try and force some new way of 
creating some dynamism in terms of innovation or or ethical thinking going forward. So maybe how I'll ask this to both of you. How do you maybe Elizabeth first? How do you see educational organisations globally seizing the initiative for collaboration? How do you think this should and could happen? Well. Um... If collaboration uh, at the at the what anchors collaboration, because I do joint venture divorces, is like marriage, right? So the number one 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 criteria is trust, and I find that the, a lot of misunderstanding and a lot that's going on around the world now is whether on purpose or not, um, people want you to mistrust each other because it's to their advantage that people don't trust each other because then you'll trust them, right? Whoever they are. And I think that is part of the problem of these mega technology company who manipulates our children, our our youth um, with um, influencing them to only believe in them. And I find that one of the reasons that SPCF, our charity, the Psychological uh, Development uh, Charitable Foundation is going to go online in a big way is that I find that it's absolutely necessary to create competing social media platforms for young people where they can trust the medium. And it cannot be for profit. It's not to manipulate them to buy things or to bring friends, but is to, so you need to find partners that are on the same level and you need to screen them and you need to trust them. And I, I find that to be the key component. Trust is paramount, you're right, it's paramount. I think, and I think you're right, I think there are forces at work who are trying to whip up distrust. Um, and we all, we all feel what distrust is in our, in our guts, we feel it, um, but it's harder to articulate what trust is. So, so Andrew, what, what, what do you think? How do you think, for example, you know, maybe DBS is an example, um, or if you want to talk more generally, how do you think educational organizations could collaborate better internationally? Yeah, I think to, just to pick up on that trust point, uh, lastly, what Elizabeth said there, that, that is absolutely critical. And I have experiences in the past where I would have had collaborations, not just with DBS, but prior to DBS, where they were fundamentally built on trust and they worked incredibly well. You know, even when there was a difficult, difficult hurdles that came along, they were just dealt with in a very open and adult way. And then I've had relationships which have not been built on trust and they just fall apart. It's, it's almost like the spirit of the law and the letter of the law. You can run something to the spirit of the law, well then it's going to go well. If you have to go back to the letter of the law each time, then you usually end up uh, in, in difficulty. Uh, and I have experience of both, and that trust thing is, is critically important. But to come back to, to your main question and, and point, Simon, uh, I think if I, if I leverage up COVID-19 again as part of this conversation, I think that the pandemic, it has changed higher education more than people probably realize. As I said earlier, we had to pivot everything away from the classroom teaching to online delivery back in March or whenever it was. And we did that, and so did other, every other higher education institution. We did that more or less successfully. But really, most higher education institutions have a strategy for greater use of digital technologies anyway in teaching and learning. Uh, and all, all that happened with COVID-19 and the spread of the coronavirus is that we all just accelerated that. Uh, now, many higher education institutions, maybe most higher education institutions, we're not going to go back to the way things were before. Even today, before uh, before doing doing this piece with you, I was talking with some other senior leaders here in the college uh, about the, the the future, and you know, I was saying we are not going to be going back to the way we were last 
January and February when 95% of our teaching was in the classroom. That's not the way it's going to be. There will be greater use of live online teaching and on-demand online education programs. Um, and in a sense, I think that, that will enable us, or maybe require us, to redefine international study uh, for students in other countries. So in the future, it doesn't automatically mean that for, for somebody to be an international student, they don't necessarily have to travel to another country, at least for the full period of the course of study, in order to, to take that course. And I guess what that does create is, is new opportunities for higher education institutions in different countries mm. to partner together to, to create maybe a multi-country international experience rather than just a single country uh, experience for a student. Now, of course, the attractiveness of this to the student would have to be tested and, and assessed in some way, because many people come to study in another country for a few reasons, and receiving a high-quality, higher education is certainly one of them, but it's only one of them. Living in a different country uh, to get that, that cultural experience is also part of the, the decision that the, the students will make. And then, of course, many students want to stay on in a country uh, to when they graduate to find a job and to, to build a career. So I think a, a key element in future collaborations, in addition to the trust point that we discussed earlier on, has to be agility. Now, when, when COVID-19 passes, and it will pass, uh, when it passes as a global crisis, the, the movement of people, for instance, is going to begin again. Uh, and I believe that students will want to travel all the more, uh, and you know, way more probably maybe than in the past. And to enable that, but maybe also to take advantage of that ourselves, uh, higher education institutions across the world, we need to be forming more and more relationships that create attractive propositions for students. And that has to include, of course, the academic piece, but it also has to include the cultural piece and the employment piece, and indeed any other factors that will add to that, that total experience that the student is going to have. So I think there's, there's a lot of opportunity there for, for collaboration or seizing the initiative uh, that, that there is in the future. I think that's a wonderful answer. And, you know, I do some work with an American organization around recording soft skills training, so-called so soft skill training to students globally through their platform, um, things like resilience and awareness and influence and skills and situational awareness and, and all these really core skills that we all need to navigate. And it just occurs to me, as you're both talking, Elizabeth and Andrew, wouldn't it, wouldn't it be interesting to have a blended version of that? Because Normally, you know, in the West, we look at those things like resilience and awareness and influencing skills and assertiveness from a Western perspective. But wouldn't it be an interesting to have a soft skills program blended from a Western and an Asian perspective? I've not seen that anywhere. Anyway, over to you, Henry. <laughs> That's a very interesting idea. And, and I agree with you all that actually COVID have many negative impacts and side effects, but at the same time, it's opened up new opportunities and horizons. So, so I'd like to ask both of you and, and Andrew, looking ahead with all these changes and, and the new norm, what, what are your top two to three priorities for cultural-led changes for your organizations? Maybe Elizabeth first, and then Andrew second. Well, culture, cultural-led changes uh, for my organization or for the world, I think culture, culture, the word, is a very difficult thing because a lot of people misunderstand this, what this word encompasses everything. And that's what we struggle with. And it's like climate, different from weather. So we said climate change rather than weather change. But every day's weather is going to influence the climate. So in the book of changes in the classics of China, the number one book, they talk about people doing things every day without knowing it. So when we talk about corporate culture, because I'm an OD organization development person, 
you talk about uh, corporate culture and you walk into an organization in three hours, I need to tell the CEO what is going on. And so I asked somebody, what, why do you do it like that? I don't know. We've always done it like that. And aha, that is the culture. He doesn't know why. <clears throat> and so as I was thinking about tonight, I feel that our first priority must be to assist our young people to know their own identity. Because if they don't know their own identity, they will be manipulated by the social media. If they know who they are, Socrates agree, Confucius agree, everybody agrees that you need to know who you are. And if you know who you are, then you're not going to be manipulated. So if I was going to have a cohort of young people from age 12 to 22 in Hong Kong, knowing the classics and going out to the world after two or three years of training like Boy Scouts and teaching people and exchanging with people, the Chinese culture, both cultures will benefit because first to exchange with someone if you don't know who you are, how are you going to tell people who you are when you exchange, what are you exchanging? So you must know, first of all, have an anchor, your own culture. So the Irish young person that I hope to send to see will also know the Irish, then they have something to talk about because then they serve as a mirror to each other and learn about each other's culture. Because culture is a very funny thing. People like uh, it was, uh, I think, Ruth, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who talks about the law and the court. They only talk about, they are decided based on the climate of the era. And so it's like the climate, the culture. I mean, which part of it? Is it the painting? Is it the theater? Is it the law? And, uh, you know, we get criticized about the law in China. It doesn't exist, but actually it does. I'm not going to talk about it now. I can go on for five days. But, you know, everything that we do in culture, and if you want to share your culture, you have to have something to share. And so my priority, number one, is to do that. But number two, how to do it. You need to have a platform to do it. You need to build an international network of like-minded people who's gonna have the same integrity and ethics and moral out, outlook as, as yourself in order to keep these young people feeling safe. Because if you have one bad apple, it'll influence all the others. And if someone pretends to be very kind, but then they actually want to use our student, then in the end, we're going to get hurt. So that's number two. I think we have to be very careful in selecting our partners and making sure that they align with us. But then, of course, we have the funding to do all this work. But I always believe that if the project has integrity, money is never a problem. Wow, oh, that's very powerful point, Eddie. And I, I really like your point that, you know, we have to help the, the people to find their identity. And, and also your very other very important point to establish the, the global network. I think these are two very important priorities. Andrew, maybe you can uh, use based on your, your experience in VBS and in Ireland, and also your work uh, in, in the UK, what, what do you like to add to this? What are your priorities looking ahead? I guess, Henry, if you, if you look at what's happening in the world currently, in general, you know, we as an educational institution or any of us individually as educationalists, we, we need to produce graduates who have acquired knowledge 
and developed a set of skills and attributes that can be applied to many different needs. You know, we, we've talked a little bit earlier about agility. Uh, Simon made reference to, to resilience. Uh, there are so many skills and attributes, often called softer skills, could easily be described as harder skills, um, but often called softer skills that people need, need to have. So we need people to have broad experiences and to learn from those experiences so that they can contribute to the solution to many of the world's problems. Now, I don't necessarily mean the tech and knowledge or a skill to, say, develop a vaccine against COVID-19. I am more thinking about those skills and attributes that, that can address more attitudinal and behavioral issues, such as intolerance or inequality uh, and division. If you look in many countries, we've seen the rise of extremes, of division, of inequality. There's been an increase in nationalism and protectionism, which I can understand to a certain extent, but which can be very insular and indeed very artificial in, in quite a heavily interconnected world. There's another I probably to, to add to Elizabeth's three eyes. There's a fourth I, kind of the interconnectedness uh, of, of everybody. And I think it's the responsibility of all of us, both individually and collectively, to try to, to counter that, the, the extremes, I mean, the division, the inequality, and to use the skills and the attributes that we have learned to sustain an environment where each of us can live without fear of inequality or indeed the consequences of inequality. So if I try to come back to priorities for cultural-led changes, and, and I haven't numbered them or anything, but I think an awareness of others and the experience of others and engagement with others, well, that certainly will contribute to people's knowledge, and it will hopefully impact positively on their attitudes and ultimately their behavior. Now, as educators, I think that's what we need to do. And this, of course, will be enabled greatly by an awareness and an experience of different cultures. And what, what better way uh, to, or where better, I suppose, to get that experience than in higher education. And in our case, if, if we are to attract people to collaborate with us, and to, to deliver and contribute a lot of what I've spoken to there. We, we really need to allow ourselves to become known. We have to be open. We have to, to show our passion and our vision and hopefully demonstrate a set of shared values with our collaborator. I think it comes back to that point of trust that we spoke about a little bit earlier as well. That's a very important point. And I, I really like your point about interconnectivity. That's really a integral part of trust. So thank you very much, Andrew. Simon? Well, this has been a powerful conversation and, and I, I could talk about this for a long time. As I said, I'm doing this work with this American organization and the program is called, back to your point, Elizabeth, and I've called the program, Who Do You Want To Be? And there's a series of suites of programs to enable young people, not to teach them, but to enable them to reflect on some of the things that you and Andrew have spoken about resilience and awareness and interconnectivity and grit and influencing skills and assertiveness and situational awareness to enable them to position themselves to allow them to be able to like, trust and respect others. Because if you don't have a framework for yourself, as you said, Elizabeth, how can you hope to like, trust and respect others? So I think there is a groundswell of movement building. And I think this part of the conversation would be great to continue in this forum and going forward, forward. So that was wonderful. Andrew, What would, just wrapping up with the final question, what would you say are the DBS's main priorities going forward, COVID willing, um, in furthering develop, develop, further developing cultural and educational links with Asia, and in particular China? In, a, in the best case scenario, what would they be? And I suppose these are very practical uh, for me and for DBS. And the first thing post-COVID, you know, I can't wait to get traveling again. The, the second priority would be for us to, to continue the creation of collaborations with Chinese universities and technological institutes so that their students can complete their higher education at DBS. Now, this means the careful selection of partners. And then once we select the partners, the, the careful mapping uh, of their educational programs to ours. Now, that's a very practical thing and, and quite unique to, to education. But it's important that we do that so as the, the teaching can be ensured and the degree awarded at the end of it uh, has very high quality 
uh, and academic validity. And then the third priority is really to encourage more and more decision makers and student influencers uh, from the, the Chinese higher education institutions to come to Ireland to get some experience of Irish living and Irish education and Irish business culture. Uh, before COVID-19 shut down the whole world, we had hosted many visits here to Dublin from current partners and prospective partners. And that direct experience, you know, being able to touch the product, so to speak, that's very important when trying to convince people that Ireland or Dublin, or in our case, Dublin Business School, that they're the right destination for international students. Now, they're, they're very practical, but you know, they would be the, the priorities that we have. Wonderful. That's wonderful. Thank you. Thanks, Andrew. Yeah, thank you, Andrew. That's very interesting. And coming to you, Elizabeth, how do you see various cultural organizations, education organizations in the East and West collaborating better globally? I think I'm, I, I'm often accused of being the person that is doom and gloom. So I have a feeling that COVID is not is going to be with us for a little while. So that's why one of my eyes is in-person interaction and experience. So, um, but um, we were able to uh, on Zoom webinar build trust and a team for thirty days. So there's hope. Okay, um, and so I feel that now that we're in this di digital age, uh, like Jeffrey Sack was saying that every age of globalization, there was a, it's driven by some kind of technology. And this time we are driven by the digital and uh, the, the cyberspace. And before it was either the horse or the ship or whatever it is. And globalization is not going to go away. It's uh, just going to change shape. And we have to get on that boat or that whatever uh, spacecraft that is going in the new shape. And I think that new shape is you must build a tremendous platform I mean, of course, we're not going to be Microsoft or you know whatever it is, uh, but we have to build as good one as possible because we have to speak the language of the audience that we are going to reach. Mm -hmm. And so I went to see games producer the other day and how to make Zhuangzi's story into a game so that I can use it to assess who I'm going to take into my sinological group. And if we don't speak their language and we insist that young people speak our language, we're going to be perceived as dinosaurs. So I find that my priorities of looking for partnership are those who are going to go forward to the new reality of this new world that we're facing and not going back to hope that the old world's coming back to us because I'm not sure because I think, um, I think it was somewhere the other day that they said there's nationalism and uh, protectionism, but those people are wishing globalization away. Globalization is just going to get smaller because it's right here in front of us. Mm -hmm. And we have to embrace that and go with it. And, uh, but we have to get them when they're young. Because to this day, I grew up in New York City. If I look at a pastrami sandwich or a kosher hot dog, I think I'm home. And I have so many friends who went on to Harvard to get Chinese degrees and speak Chinese and have relatives that grew up in, in China that I never knew because we were friends when we were young. So young technology and uh, we have to let them 
exchange on, make their friends on the internet and become very close, but not to manipulate them or to cheat them. Thank you, Ellie. That's really very powerful point. And I, I really agree with you that globalization is not going away. It is a train, I think, like a train which is leaving the platform. It's up to each country to decide whether they want to get on the train or not. I think yeah. that's a very powerful metaphor. And I, I really like to thank both uh, Elizabeth and Andrew for, for being wonderful guests and for your very insightful comments. I've really learned a lot from both your insightful comments on your, your great sharing. And I hope our audience who are listening, going to listen and watch this program globally will enjoy it as much as I have. Simon? I agree, Henry. And for me, this has been fascinating. There's been so much in this. And it's like, I think Elizabeth and Andrew, you were both sort of talking both about the future. And it's like we went to sleep in 2019 and we've woken up in 2030. And and I think globalization is going from propeller-driven aircraft now to supersonic air, aircraft, because whether we like it or not, this is how the world is going to be globalized. And so I think that was wonderful. And uh, we hope that the, the, the listeners and the viewers can tune in and watch and listen as we release this over the few next few weeks. We'll release a couple of short snippets of this, of this conversation as well, because it's been very powerful. And uh, I'd like to thank you both. It was wonderful. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye bye. Bye bye. Bye bye. bye, -bye. bye, -bye. bye, -bye. bye, -bye.